0: I'm Collinet. Welcome to Afropop. We have a great program for you today. Music from Cameroon. That's where I'm from. So, of course, I think the music is great. But don't take it from a partisan. Cameroon's music is popular on dance floors all over West Africa. So, I hope you're in the mood to move. Or maybe we can help you get in the mood. Oh my goodness, that was, me sounding very serious, but that was 30 years ago this month, opening one of the very first editions of this program. Back then, it was called Afropop, but today we are Afropop Worldwide, from PRI, Public Radio International. And I, Georges Collinet, I'm still here, getting you in the mood to dance, sing, and generally revel in the endlessly enriching world of global African music. Well, I still have a special place in my heart for Makossa, an exquisite musical export from my ancestral home in Cameroon, we are hearing a classic track from Sam Fantoma, the great Makossa maestro who left us unfortunately in 2015. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since Afropop first hit the public airwaves in October 1988, and we thank all of you who have joined us for any part of this long journey. And today, we're going to tell you the story of how this show came to be in the first place. We do this with help from our friend podcaster, Rosemary Pritzker. Rosemary hosts a show of hearts a podcast about living life with courage. You can find out more about it on our website, afropop.org. Rosemary recently sat down with the founders of Afropop, Sean Barlow and Banning Air, and we're going to sample some choice excerpts from their conversation. But first, here's a track from the group that opened our very first broadcast, Martha Tini and the Mahotela Queens.
1: Arrivé dans la moussissie, et tu pilotes du coup capillé, voilà, et mon nom à ras. Arrivé dans la moussi, et tu pilotes du coup capillé, voilà, et mon Botamata di mogolo hore ha
0: In the 1980s, vintage maconga music from Marlatini and the Mahotella Queens. Wonderful. I'm Georges Collinet, and we are looking back to the origins of Afropop Worldwide. Rosemary Pritzker, host of the podcast A Show of Hearts, spoke with Afropop founder Sean Barlow and longtime producer Banning Air.
2: When I first sat down with them, I asked Sean and Banning what it meant to them to follow the heart.
3: Well... It goes way back for me, because my mother used to use that expression. Um, and, you know, we were raised in the 60s, and my parents were pretty, uh, they were pretty liberal, and they, they always sort of had that ethic of you should do what you love. I always had this conflict all through my formative years of I loved writing and I loved music and I realized that both of them were things that you had to dedicate yourself to entirely so it was always like which one do I love more and I never really was able to make that decision so I still do both but it is exactly what it sounds like. You do what pulls you. You don't think about you know, the practical or or economic implications, to an extent you do, but in the beginning, I, I was always driven by just going the places I wanted to go, pursuing the things I wanted to, playing the music I wanted to play, writing the things, and some of them, a lot of them didn't work, but you know, I, I still basically operate on that
4: principle. I had parents with very similar philosophy. It was all about don't force your kids to do what you want them to do because they'll wind up resenting you and allow them to do uh, what they love to do. And God bless my parents, that's what they you know, taught us. And I can just trace nature. I grew up right on the Potomac River and I was all up and down the Potomac River all the time as a kid, canoeing, swimming, swinging on vines and so on. Later on, uh, hiking in the big national parks out west. That was my passion. And hitchhiking here, there and everywhere. But really it was music that kind of pulled it all together for me as um, I'm not a musician, but I studied music and I kind of I was aware of like some big aesthetic principles uh, that guided Javanese, Indian, African music and so on. So I started doing um, radio, which is a passion for me in up in Alaska, where I worked as a commercial fisherman and a cold storage worker and then and travel I love to travel that was a big passion of mine I think I tell all the interns who come here whatever you do take time off from school and go traveling you know live in Morocco you know spend time in an Egyptian monastery whatever you know like you know become a an assistant to a game warden in, in, in Tanzania you know that's the stuff you really learn from
2: so was there anyone who inspired you when you were a kid who you looked up to
4: I would start
3: with my mother. She inspired me a lot artistically. Well, first of all, she played guitar and sang songs. And when she was in college, you know, in the 30s or 40s, she traveled through Mexico collecting folk songs. And she always had this idea of found music. And that 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 was actually what started me playing guitar. And she also made mobile. She was a visual artist. And just her dedication to creativity would just put the whole idea of being an artist in in my mind very clearly. There were many, another one I would point to would be a particular teacher that I had in high school. His name was Gilbert Burnett, and he'd been in the OSS, which was the precursor of the CIA. He taught anthropology and biology, and he was just very fastidious, very demanding teacher, but he was so incredibly open-minded and there were so many ideas that I was introduced to as a high school student that really have stuck with me ever since. Just ideas about culture and how culture makes people who they are. Gil was the first person who who really talked about culture to me and made me think about it as all the things that you acquire in life and from your surroundings as opposed to things that are just inbred in your genes or in your blood. And once that idea was in my head, I've tended to think about things in those terms, you know. How much of your attitudes, your capabilities, your senses of what's possible, even your emotions and the things that draw you are really derived from culture. And, you know, when we started traveling in Africa, there were just so many fascinating examples of that. I mean, as a musician, I always note the way kids in Africa learn about melody and rhythm, especially rhythm, because there's so much dancing and and so much rhythmic activity. And I've really noticed it because when I started trying to play African guitar, it was all about, you know, never mind what the notes are, don't drop the time. And I realized, okay, this is culture. This is something that I just was not programmed to do. And that I'm having to sort of struggle to kind of rewire my brain to operate in this other culture.
2: So, Sean, was there anyone that inspired you when you were a kid?
4: Oh, lots of people, but um, I'd have to say my older brother, Mark, uh, because he's a really cool guy. Yeah, he was an actor, <laughs> a musician, he played in a soul band, funk band, uh, performed for Robert F. Kennedy. He just like did everything. He's, he played basketball. I could not be nearly as cool as he was. He was five years older, right? Five and a half years old. So anyway, and he was, in our family, the first one to go to Africa, and and he came back from, I think, Ghana was the first. And he brought back all sorts of instruments and and, uh, stories, and so he really kind of inspired me that way. He went on to become a recording artist. His artistic name is Marcus James. Fast forward to school at Westland, where we both met. There was a course called uh, Ancient Rites of Initiation and Modern Psychological Therapies. And my God, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a room was full of 200 <laughs> kids just busting with, you know, curiosity. And every week there was lectures and films. And the basic, you know, principle was the journey of the shaman and people who go beyond their known world and come back to their world to share some of the sacred knowledge that they've gained. That became the imprint for my life, you know, that's what I did. That's what I'm doing. Of course, I had other reasons to do the research and so on, to go to Africa. and, and uh, But that, I would say, it was very, very, uh, made a huge impression. Dude, our school was really amazing. The religion department was fantastic. The English department was fantastic. The dance department was fantastic. So we we were liberal artists. We were lucky enough to do some of everything, you know? But that particular course is the one I remember especially. And on that
0: note, Let's hear some healing music from Morocco. This is the sound of Gnawa.
1: Bush as he had to bumper. Come in
2: After graduating, Sean went to Alaska to work in the commercial fishing industry.
4: I had the naive notion that you could go up to Alaska and make money. A lot of kids... That's not true? Well, eventually, (laughs) first you have to learn the trade, you know. Fishing is a difficult trade. So first year, you know, I didn't really make a lot of money, but I made a lot of good friends. And it was my first experience with radio because there was KCiW, Raven Radio, Literally, the month I got there in Sitka, Alaska, that's the southeastern Alaska, went on the air, playing way too much Irish music. (laughs) Because the programming people were all Irish music fiends. So I had this mixed experience of learning radio and getting to do my world music program for, for the first time. And making some money, making friends, and um, uh, it was appealing enough that I came back the second year and I, I did much better, kinda of learn new things on the radio. And I earned enough money that I could actually travel around the world one way. I traveled around the world one way for eight months for six thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was eighty three, eighty four.
2: I was one, I was born That's in the Okay. <laughs>
4: there you go. You missed you missed a great era there, Rose. <laughs> But um, the focus for that was a radio project in Madras, or Chennai as we say now, South India. And I did a four-part series on the Carnatic music tradition. Everything, you know, engineering, voicing, writing, marketing, I just did everything up at my little station in Alaska. Learn, you know, some things I was good at, and some things I was maybe not so good at.
1: <laughs> like
4: I didn't. Good have... to know early on. <laughs> yeah, <that's what> I... <laughs> like you know, I was okay as a voiceover person, but I wanted you know people who were better than me. You know, so I earned enough that season to go this time to Ghana, Cameroon, and Congo. At the time, it was called Zaire, under Mobutu Sese <laughs> And that was just such a mind-blowing experience because I had studied West African music in college. I had seen King day perform live in 83 in California, which like, whoa, that is a mother of a big band with four guitars and five dancers. And like that really kind of opened my eyes to like what contemporary African music was and how much I loved it. No one was paying me. I was not on an assignment in West Africa and in Congo. I was, this was all my own earnings. But Ghana I loved, especially the traditional culture, was still very rich there. The high-life bands were kind of faded away a bit, but there were still some high-life artists who were cool. And Cameroon was... Remember Makosa and Bikutsi? That was really hot in African music, in like uh, especially Paris, and elsewhere in the mid-80s. But really, the motherlode was Kinshasa, because Kinshasa was the most musical city I'd ever been in my life. You go out at midnight to see your first band. You wind up around, the, they call it Jusca up until dawn, Jusca And so you might see two or three bands in a night, and every band had like particular dance routines. And uh, my God, the level of high male unison singing and harmonies was extraordinary. The level of guitarship was extraordinary. And, And the rhythm section was fantastic too. I kind of bumped into after interviewing him with this guy by the name of Franco, uh, who is grand uh, artist, singer, composer, band leader, legendary figure. I went to his house and uh, his house is like a furniture showroom. You know, he has beautiful furniture. And his garage had like about eight luxury cars in it, and I, I learned that, you know, Mercedes, Renaults, this or that. I learned that he didn't, he when when one of his composers, um uh, composed a hit song, he didn't pay him, he gave him a car, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is not bad, not to get a Mercedes okay. for a hit song, uh, <laughs> and uh, but you know, I mean, he was a bit of a control freak too. Oh yeah. Anyways, uh, so. So the, the kind of uh, kind of seminal moment for me was there I in, I was in a, this little divey bar in Kinshasa, and this guy turns to me and says, "Oh my God, it's Franco!" He's wearing a beret, and Franco's a big guy, like 300 pounds, and uh, deep voice. I had interviewed him, so he knew who I was. I was an American journalist, and so on and so on. And uh, he turned to me and said, "These aliens, we know Ahita Franklin, James Brown." Otis Redding, but you, Americans, you know nothing of our music. Why? And it was this like cry from the heart that just like pierced my heart. Because he was right, of course. All this phenomenal, this is the best music in Africa. And why was it so little known
3: in the world? And And, and that's more than 10 years after the Rumble in the Jungle, when that was all supposed to be thrown open
4: by that big festival they had. It didn't happen, so he was frustrated. He was very frustrated, and he he wasn't speaking about me not knowing, because obviously I was there and I was learning. He was talking about me representing Americans. And I said to him, like, "Oh, Franco, you're right. You're so right. This is really this is a bad situation. I'll I'll try to do something about it." I think I said something <laughs> like that.
2: <laughs> and you did.
4: I did. Yeah, it came through. <laughs> but but anyway, um, and then the the, the the next time, I went to Africa. I invited uh, Banning to come with me as a co-producer, and we also went to Kinshasa. You can just name the names of the stars at that moment we were there. Pepekele, Papawemba, Wemba, uh, course, Fofiola Tabule, I mean, there's so Victoria many brilliant artists, and uh, unfortunately, you know, because we have recordings, you can actually listen to these artists. Yeah, there's a lot. Of a people. lot of them are dead, unfortunately, <laughs> but, um, uh, anyways, uh, there's always new artists coming up, so so we really were on a roll. At that point, actually we were funded, we, we had gotten funding from um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So I came back from this trip, you know, saying, oh, I, maybe I could put together a little 13 parts here. He's, and the big dog at CPB the, in the radio program, Rick Madden, rest in peace, he said to me, well, Sean, kind of sternly, um, the panel listened to your demo tape and... Um, we think that 13 programs is not enough. We want 52. <laughs> I go, whoa! I said, well, I'd have to go back several times to do the research. To Africa, he says do it. it. says, do you have an accountant? No. Find one. Do you have a computer? No. Buy one. You know, it's like, shh, you know, basically gear up really quickly. Yeah. And yeah. And then we were, st- we were on we were, Can you imagine? This would never happen today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and in in retrospect, you know, this is, this is in the wake of Graceland, you know, God bless Paul Simon. And then we were kind of at the right place at the right time. And uh, we had the right concept, you know, and, and, and of course, mostly the music was so powerful. Um, and unknown. And that's the point of public broadcasting, isn't it? To introduce people to new things for their aesthetic enjoyment and for their spiritual consideration.
0: New things for your aesthetic enjoyment and your spiritual consideration. I like that. That's what we are doing here at Pop Worldwide. And we're listening back to excerpts from the podcast, A Show of Hearts, from an episode in which host Rosemary Pritzker spoke with Sean Barlow and Banning Air.
3: That's me, George. Hey, Banning, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. George, I'm breaking form here, leaping out of the podcast dimension, because I think listeners want to hear from you, too, about the birth of Afropop. We've dug into your backstory in other programs, I know, but today... We'd really like to hear your version of how you came to host this program. How did that happen? Well, Banning,
0: 1988, I had already been broadcasting for 30 years. I had several radio shows on The Voice of America, The Daily French Breakfast Show, Maxi Vroom Vroom, The English Evening Program, The Sound of Soul, etc., etc. Well, they were all, I must say, quite successful, with audiences counting in millions. I was presenting American music to Africa and the world in general. I played a lot of what they called race music. James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Jimmy Smith, and all these amazing people who were unknown on international airwaves. But I knew that they were going to impress my African listeners, and it worked. My listeners, made up of villagers, city dwellers, high officials and presidents, and even people in the United States were attracted by this music and also by the high-powered DJ style that I had adopted. The only difference with the US radio jocks was my banter. I was presenting life in America. Life in America, what do you mean by that? Well, I was presenting America to Africa, but I also thought that my new country, the United States of America, needed to know more about Africa, the land that had brought them these great African-American musicians who managed to conquer the artistic world with rhythm and blues, rock and roll, blues, and jazz.
3: But you also lived in Paris, right, where you worked with a lot of African musicians, isn't that right? Yep. In the
0: 1970s, I was living in Paris where I was taping my radio shows on The Voice of America in a studio that was set up at the American Embassy. I don't know if the ambassador knew about it. I was also working on various projects, an African musical that went bankrupt. I had contract with several record companies, for example with Warner Brothers. And I would get all these record companies to contemplate working with African musicians. I knew them all, I had become their conduit to the world. My studio became the meeting place of African artists in Paris. And that's when I made the decision that I would present these enormously talented artists when I went back to America. I wanted Americans to know them. The idea was to produce a radio program presenting these beautiful African musicians to radio stations in the US. But I did not have the wherewithal and the concentration to accomplish this project. I was involved in a television program, working with NGOs, were writing songs. But then one day, a friend at The Voice of America told me that a radio producer was looking for somebody to present a program on African music on public radio. Public radio? What is that? I was invited to go meet that person in a studio. And that studio was in a big brick warehouse in a funky neighborhood on New York Avenue. Uh, I was a little nervous, I must say. I have worked in many studios, but none like this. The sound engineer opened the many security locks to let me in and introduced me to a tall, lanky, bespectacled and bearded gentleman who had that uh, public radio demeanor, as I call it. George, said the sound engineer, accentuating the French pronunciation of George, meet Sean Barlow. Sean, who was hardly smiling, said, Hello, George. I've heard a lot of good things about you. As you heard, I need somebody to present this program that I intend to produce for NPR. So, let's record a demo. Oh, (laughs) so how did that go? (laughs) We started recording a script that Sean had written. Except for the S's that I usually forget to pronounce, you see, we do not pronounce S's in French, all went smoothly thanks to Sean's professionalism and Rob Burman, the sound engineer, smooth engineering. I must say that the sound of that studio was quite amazing. So that's how a long relationship started. And like in all relationships, everyone brings his gift to make it work. Sean is a steadfast manager and an excellent radio writer. And me, well, I bring my knowledge of Africa and my enthusiasm for presenting my continent to the world. And maybe also my voice has something to do with it. (laughs) Manning, that's my story.
3: Yeah, and your voice has a lot to do with it. But thank you. That's really wonderful to hear your story.
0: A show of hearts and visit Afropop.org for a feature on the future of Afropop. Don't miss it, please. I'm Georges Colinet and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Let's get back to Rosemary's conversation with Sean and Banning.
2: Somehow Afropop has managed to exist.
3: Yes, somehow.
2: For like around 30 30 years years now? Yes, yes. That's amazing.
3: It is amazing. Yeah, it was 30 years ago right now that I made my first trip, Sean's second trip to uh, to Africa. What
2: other (laughs) music show is there that's lasted that long? I mean, especially one that's about other cultures, you know?
4: A, I, I don't think there story. is any other show, really. Yeah, there's
2: nothing like it.
4: Yeah, no, that's true.
2: So yeah. what you created was entirely unique.
4: Yeah. Right.
2: Can you talk more about why it was so important to you to share that music and that culture with the world?
4: Just the music was so great. I mean, it's just this magical, complicated pop music that wasn't that well known beyond Africa and Europe. We are basically just serving that bridge function. And,
3: you know, one of the things that I think is really important about what Afropop's done and right from the beginning is to just present an alternative view of Africa from the one that's in the news, which is, as we know, focused usually on disease and war and starvation and various things like that. And the big aha moment I had was when I was living in New Mexico and I saw a player from from West Africa, and I felt this really strong connection between the kind of rhythms and melodies and finger style stuff that he was doing on the Chora. A lot of it sounded like American folk music to me. He was from Gambia. It might have been Musa Suso, but for me, one of the things that I've felt a really strong mission for in working with Afropop is making Americans understand how connected this music is, not only the way they reflect back funk and R&B and hip hop to us, but the way they hear blues and Cuban music and other American forms and see themselves in it, and then seeing how that is explained through history. You know, where did the African Americans who came here come from, and what did they bring with them, and what did they bring with them that then became sort of the DNA of our folk music? Sometimes I think of some of the modern forms of you know folk pop in west africa and central africa especially and our music they're like twins separated at birth you know is the image that i always use because there's this mysterious connection that you can never completely understand because the history was never well recorded i mean there are these murky centuries that go by that we don't really know exactly how all these forms came together but you look at something like the banjo which is clearly originated from an African model. The original ones were gourds. They had no frets. They had the high string and the thumb position, all these basic, the finger-picking style. But through the history of minstrelsy, the banjo became very stigmatized, and, and African-Americans didn't really want to play the banjo very much anymore. They moved to the guitar, and the banjo becomes part of bluegrass. And So just in a fairly short period of time, less than 100 years, it goes from being a distinctly African instrument played by african-americans to being a very white identified instrument to the point where when scholarship started coming out about this all these banjo aficionados were saying no that's impossible you know this is not an african instrument And there was a lot of bickering and fighting about that even in academic circles now it's accepted but but it's just one example of how so much of africa is infused into our culture that we don't necessarily recognize and music provides a way to kind of Reconnect, you know, and that's always been something that I thought was really important about the work we do. Okay,
0: time to reconnect with you,
3: dear listeners.
0: Back in 1990, we became Afropop Worldwide, and the point was to recognize that Africa is connected to the whole world South America, the Middle East, the Caribbean, but by now, almost everywhere in the world. And I would have to say that nobody has done more to enhance our coverage of the Caribbean and South America than our longtime producer, also an author, a musician, he can play a mean guitar, all-around Renaissance man, Ned Sublet. We are especially indebted to Ned for producing over 20 programs on Cuban music. You can find those on afropop.org, search on The Cuban Connection, and now in Ned's honor a track from Ned's 1993 compilation Cuban Gold released on his own record label Cubadisc. Here is Estrellas de Arreito. son from Estrelas de Arrito, compliments of our man Ned Sublet, a champion of Afropop's 30 years on public radio.
2: One of the closest relationships that Sean and Banning built was with Johnny Clegg, a white South African who passionately and voraciously threw himself deep into Zulu culture as a teenager through both music and dance. He later gained notoriety for combining the traditional Zulu music with modern pop. His band combined black and white musicians in the height of apartheid, which was a brave act of resistance. His music is full of heart, and you can hear the deeply rooted connection he has to African culture in his singing. This next song is a recording Sean and Banning made of Johnny playing guitar and singing a traditional Zulu song in his home in Johannesburg in
1: 1987. Gonani, night, go night, gonani, night Go night, go night, go night.
2: He was sort of, in a lot of ways, like the voice of, of the freedom struggle of apartheid in South Africa.
3: He was an important voice because he was white. Yeah. And, yeah. and he was
2: willing to to take great risk, to put himself in great danger, to go and be with his Zulu brothers to practice with his dance group, at, yeah. you know, when he was a teenager and whatever. Um, and has such awesome stories about that, yeah. too. Um, but he's someone who, like, he's African. But he's white, you know, like it's such a rare special combo that that allows um, two worlds to come together in a way that's actually like really beautiful because it's through culture. It's um, true. Yeah.
3: He was important to me too, because even before Afropop was thought of and and we, we went to Africa when I was living in Eugene, Oregon, playing with my my uh, reggae funk blues band, <laughs> a friend of mine. From Wesleyan, who's a doctor, had been doing some work in South Africa, and she brought me an album of Johnny Clegg's. It was the Scatterlings album, mm-hmm. and uh, and I became obsessed with it, particularly with the guitar playing, but also that that deep Zulu vocal stuff. You know, it was very exciting to me. But I didn't really know. I had no idea where we were headed. You know, with with this journey. Yeah. You know, but it. But I really loved that record, and it it started me thinking about how. Wow, there should be cool music happening in Africa that we never hear, you know. And so yeah, he was very important early on.
2: Yeah, well, and then you got to to meet him.
3: Yeah, on the very first trip I seen after that, right? In yeah. 88, yeah.
4: Yeah. In Johannesburg.
2: Yeah.
3: And he was such a great storyteller and he and he and he he taught me some of that Zulu guitar stuff that I actually still
4: play. And the dancing is mm. remarkable because there's a sort of certain Zulu style of dancing where you kick your your leg way high. It's like, how do you do that? And you smash it down.
2: They would throw their leg way up in, like almost doing the splits, but like bending forward with their, like their trunks or whatever, and then slam it down on the ground. And I guess it's like a war dance, right? Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah it's, it's about, like, about smashing the skull of your enemy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's a good way to finish off Yeah, the Zulu a are gentle.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
4: so Johnny and his Zulu bandsmates uh, who, as you say, would go into the townships where white and black bands were not supposed to Well, it was play. illegal. Yeah. It was illegal. Oh, they had shows close. And he oh, got
2: arrested yeah. how many times? Countless uh, time. many a times. Many times, yes. Yeah. I grew up listening to Johnny Clegg with my family. His music was profoundly important and formative for me. Last October, Sean, Banning, and I went to see him perform at B.B. King's in New York City. This was part of his goodbye tour. So it was a deeply moving and joyous, but emotional experience.
3: Well, the thing is that Johnny was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, a couple of years ago, and he's now been through chemotherapy twice, and basically his prospects aren't good. But he was in remission, and so he decided to do a world tour, a farewell tour, and kind of make this show that kind of summed up his life. And... You know, I mean, we've met so many artists over the years, and sometimes they kind of remember you, and they're friendly. Sometimes they don't remember you at all. (laughs) But Johnny has always been really present, you know. He remembers right back to that first time we met. And he's given us some just really spectacular, very deep interviews over the years. So in this case, he was singing one of the songs that he often ends his show with, Dela, which is really a beautiful song it's kind of a song about longing and it has this great line I think I know why the dog howls at the moon
1: yes Uh.
3: and then he sings this incredibly moving chorus and everyone's singing along and then it has this refrain I burn for you and right when he hit it he spotted me in the audience and he pointed right at me and and said I "I burn burn for for you you. yeah and I was like oh my god (laughs) that was that was powerful Yeah. yeah yeah
2: how did that hit you
3: I was just really touched by it, and, and it sent shivers down my spine. I mean, really, it was beautiful. One
1: day I looked up and there you were Like a simple question, looking for an answer Now I a will, listening to some in a car Swimming blindly
0: We're sampling excerpts from the podcast A Show of Hearts. And at one point, Rosemary asked about a major milestone in Afropop's recent history when we won the 2015 Peabody Institutional Award,
4: recognizing our entire body of work.
2: The moment that you found out that you'd won, what was that like?
4: Oh, the guy who was working here at the time as our director of new media, Sam Backer. I thought he was pulling my leg, yeah. you know. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, like Sam, what, what are you talking about? It's like, what do you, what do you mean? And, and then, then it became real, and actually got on the phone with the director of the Peabody's who confided in me that he was really kind of lobbing heavily for Aww. us, and so on. When
3: that news came through, I was actually on a ship in uh, Praia Arbor in, in Cape Verde, and I had—I I had, my job was to do lectures and to arrange for concerts, and there was an artist, Zé-Louis, a singer, who was supposed to come on the ship and perform, and they hadn't showed up. And it it was late, and it was kind of becoming stressful. So I I ran down, got my laptop, and opened it up to find the the contact number of the person that I was supposed to be talking to. And there was this email from Sean saying that we just won the Peabody. And it it was just... It was just surreal. I mean, that was a wonderful day in a number of ways from that point on. But but it was funny because the, the director of entertainment there was this British woman, and she had never heard of Afropop, had no idea. Didn't even really know what a Peabody was. But, you know, I mentioned it to her, and she immediately got on her computer. And the funny thing was that the other person who got the institutional award that year was David Attenborough, and he was like a god to her. And it was like, you won the same award as Attenborough, you know? And so it was a funny day, but boy. Yeah, this real
1: high. E cunha quem vem, e cunha quinta vai. E cunha quem vem, e cunha quinta vai.
0: E cunha quem vem, e cunha quinta vai. From Quebec to Louis, as we look back on 30 years of Afropop. years ago, Rosemary Pritzker took up the Shona Mbira from Zimbabwe. She was drawn by the music, but also by the instruments used in spiritual practice. The Mbira is used to connect people,
3: literally, with the spirits of their ancestors. This is something you find all over the world. You find it in Sufi music and in North Africa and the Middle East. You find it in uh, in Cuban music, Peru, so many places music is used as a way of you know, Sean talked about the journey of the shaman. It is a shamanistic kind of thing. You're using the music to to actually transcend reality. In the case of the Shona with the mbira, they conceptualize it as bringing about possession of an ancestor, so that you can actually communicate with that ancestor and figure out some problem you're having, or resolve some situation or conflict. That's another fascinating thing about a lot of African music: is the way it forces you to reconceptualize the whole way that you think about music.
2: Well, and culture—not just like mm-hmm. the whole way you think about music, culture, um, ancestry. Because the the purpose of the mbira is to call on the ancestors, and as a result, all all of these people in Zimbabwe know who their ancestors are, going way back, um, which. I don't, I don't know that about mine. You know, like I know a few generations back, but I think a lot of us Americans like don't. No. Have that kind of connection to our ancestry.
3: Right. Right. You know, we can go
2: to Ancestry.com, but it, you know, it's not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. as, like you know, like how, taking on the spirit of. The, you know.
3: And you know, it's not actually everyone in Zimbabwe who knows that because of the very harsh nature of the Rhodesian regime and its insistence on interfering with culture. That music remains stigmatized for a lot of Zimbabweans. A lot of the urbanized Zimbabweans have this very ambivalent relationship with that kind of culture. Like, it's it's something that you do when you go home to the village at Christmas, but in the city, you wouldn't want to be associated with it. So it's a whole cultural divide. But that thing about ancestry, that's actually even more true in the other music I've spent a lot of time with, which is the griot music of West Africa, like Mali, where again, it's a very elaborate, beautiful musical tradition. And But the whole content of the lyrics in this case, it's not about possession or anything mystical, but it is very specifically about recounting history and talking about ancestors, and a good griot has to know the stories of all the major families, so that if they're at a wedding, there's a person who's assigned to know each family that comes in, okay, so the jallos have just arrived. So then the griot has to know, what are all the stories I have to tell, and what how can I relate that to the present? And there's this whole lyrical improvisation aspect. But as a result of that, I was just so amazed when I lived in Mali in the mid-90s that little kids just knew all this history, you know? And that's not, it's not true here, but it's also not true in a lot of parts of Africa.
2: Think about the difference between us in our culture in school having to learn our history practically shoved down our throats just <laughs> so we can answer test questions right. compared to in certain African cultures where it's something that they learn from the culture. Yeah. That's going to that's going to stick with you so much more because it it has soul.
4: Yeah.
3: You
2: know.
4: We spent a lot of time in Mali, by the way. We just love, 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 love Mali. It's um, amazing artists, uh, amazing people, amazing stories. But anyways, um, the resource it goes back to the 13th century. I mean, people, the artists who are the keepers of the history, they can tell stories from the founding of the, the empire of Mali, who was Sunjata Keita. That's pretty amazing. Bani can play... Sunjata to wherever he goes in a Malian context. And that is that is the story, that is the song of Sunjata. And anybody can play that song. And there's another song, Masana Sisei, it's about a uh, businessman who was a great patron of the arts. That guy really spent his money well, because his <laughs> that, song gone, is played all <laughs> the time. <laughs> yeah. It's on constant, uh, you know, heavy duty uh, play. Yeah. And uh, that's that's something very special.
2: There's a passage in Banning's book, Lion Songs. No workday is too long, no rain too cold, nor sun too hot. No elder too mean, as long as everything ends with the dancing and songs, laughter and moonlight, and the all-encompassing embrace of a big family.
3: Couldn't have said it better myself.
2: You did say (laughs) it better.
1: Narunya ma daliko e tuluka kumodo me naru tulu daliko me sina kazi nada dake kufuga siba.
0: Mmm, Kandia one of Mali's most respected griot singers, or Jelly Musso. And by the way, that's Banning's guitar mentor, Jelly Madi Tunkara on acoustic guitar. Near the end of Rosemary Pritzker's conversation with Sean and Banning, she asked them to recount especially powerful memories from their fieldwork.
3: Here's Banning. In 2001, we did a tour of Madagascar. We traveled with Ansh of the band Tarika and Tarika Sammy before that, and she had arranged this kind of cultural trek, and we were working with a tour company that was really not used to people coming for culture. They were all about, you take the people, you put them in the four-wheel drive, you take them to the beach and to see the lemurs, and she had arranged this very circuitous route that involved lots of trips down long dirt roads. And in one case we went to this village that was famous for making these instruments, these sort of ukulele like instruments called kabosi. And it was a full moon night and we were going down these roads and these drivers were getting really, uh, what the hell are we doing? And they just were getting, They were really starting to get bulky, you know. And we got to this village, we all got out and suddenly we were just totally surrounded by the village and all these people were playing these instruments and dancing and and, and, you know, old women and little children and and just this, it was just the sweetest thing. No one wanted to leave. And even the drivers after that, they were like, okay, you know, now we get what this is all about. I don't know, that's one that just popped into my mind. Yeah.
4: Another one that I think of is, um, we went up to the Festival in the Desert you might have heard of. Uh, which was in 2003 north of Timbuktu. You know, people kind of lounged about in tents, you know, between the performances. They let us come in and uh, and record uh, acoustic, basically acoustic sessions. The
3: festival itself was really put on by and for the Tuareg nomads. It was organized around a gathering that, that they already have. You know, they're, they're very widely dispersed people living in the desert. So these moments when they can all come together are incredibly important. This is where courtships begin and so many things, you know, you seeing old friends and family and it was a very special moment. It was particularly poignant given how much things have deteriorated there since, but that's and we, we
4: made uh, the first and last place we ever made a movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was the no, a real movie. Festival in the Desert, The tenth Sessions. Yes, you can find some of it on YouTube.
2: I just wanted to thank you guys for stoking the flames of my already existing passion for African music and everything about Africa. Um, and the amount of things that it's, that it's opened up and brought into my life. And so I just, I wanted to ask you guys, what gifts has Afropop brought into your lives?
4: Mm. Oh my God. So many,
3: um, I think the greatest gift has been the ability to step beyond the role of being a journalist and to become a participant. And for me, it's it's been playing music and the opportunity to actually learn the music well enough that I can be accepted as a musician. I've had the amazing privilege of being on the stage playing with Thomas Mafumo, the Rail Band, Sally Sidibe, uh, Wendo Colosoy
4: of Congo, and, and you know, that's just like such a high. To actually be able to go into a musical scene in a very a sensual, real, auditory and social way is just nothing like it. So you know when you travel it's like your life becomes triple speed. There's so much stimulation you're, you're absorbing so much, you're meeting people and talking that it's like, like your, your, your life is supercharged. I think I could die right now to feel like I have lived a fulfilled life. Uh. Sometimes I'm taking off in a plane and so I, I, this plane could crash and I'd be okay. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry, some people would miss me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the idea that you could die and feel good about your life, that's something special.
0: Sean gets the last word on our look back on 30 years of Afropop. Special thanks to Rosemary Pritzker, the host of A Show of Hearts, sharing these excerpts from her inspiring podcast you can hear the whole episode and many more at ashowofhearts.com and visit afropop.org for a feature on the future of this program funding for afropop worldwide comes from the national endowment for the arts which believes a great nation deserves great art and pri Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall. Tickets are on sale this Thursday for Angelique Kidjo's series of concerts at Carnegie Hall. More information at carnegiehall.org. And from Womex, the showcase and exposition of roots and world music, October 23rd to the 27th. Tampere, Finland. More info, womex.com. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for world music productions. Production for this program by Rosemary Pritzker, Morgan Greenstreet, and Banning Air. And be sure to subscribe to our own podcast, including radio programs and our Afropop Close Up podcast series. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn, New York, by Michael Jones. Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richmond. And I'm Georges Collinet.